Hi, welcome to Never Delegate Understanding. I am thrilled to uh, have Greg Gonsalves here today. Greg is a fellow colleague here with me at Yale. For nearly three decades, he was an HIV uh, AIDS activist, working with domestic and international organizations uh, such as uh, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power Act Up when I was a resident in uh, San Francisco in the 1980s. Uh, you know, we, we were... Uh, and. And as I followed the field subsequently, you know, I was very tuned into how effective ACT UP was in getting attention, funding, and being able to garner, um, garner respect as a voice for those who are facing similar health conditions. And so uh, Greg was, was there at the beginning. His, his uh, um, efforts also have been to connect people within the HIV AIDS community with, with top-tier researchers and scientists to to help be a catalyst and, and to have them be involved in the process. Um, it, you should also know that he's a top, actually he's, be, he's gained a PhD at, at Yale, is now, like I said, a member of our faculty and is a, really a top researcher, a MacArthur Award winner, and someone who is deeply committed to helping communities to make the right choices uh, for themselves, to be able to, uh, to promote the best health of, of their communities. So a, anyway, I, Greg, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for inviting me. Just before uh, we get into some of these issues, um, maybe you could just tell a little bit about, you know, how you got to be where you are and who you are. Today. Share with the group. I'll do the short version of the story, but um, in the 1980s when the AIDS epidemic broke out, I was a college dropout in Boston, um, waiting tables, had no health insurance, by the way. Uh, and one of the people I first fell in love with as I came out of the closet uh, was a man who turned out to be HIV positive. And this is in the years before highly active antiretroviral therapy. Um, there weren't a lot of choices uh, in terms of treatment. And um, decided that we needed to figure this out together and um, search for ways to, to, to find information and choices and ideas about what his prognosis was. And this is before the internet. There is no Google. There is no PubMed. Um, we were uh, flying blind. We're sneaking into medical libraries um, until I stumbled on a group called ACT UP um, where I found like-minded people um, looking for information, looking for choices about their own uh, health care uh, and um, spent the next two decades working with groups like ACT UP, other groups like the Treatment Action Group, which really we're essentially devoted to the idea of never delegating understanding, as you've been saying, um, about taking their healthcare into their own hands um, and uh, worked with ACT UP uh, and Treatment Action Group to sort of reform the AIDS research portfolio at the NIH. But then in the, in the two, early 2000s, went to South Africa to think about how to extend um, the work we did in teaching ourselves the science of HIV, the, 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 the details about the drugs and diagnoses, the opportunistic infections we might face to people uh, in that region of the world. Now it's a worldwide movement, uh, patient-led movement for access to medicines, but also control over our own, our own destiny. Um, and ended up at Yale in 2008 to finish a college degree, get a PhD, and land here in front of you talking today. <laughs> well, and you've made such great contributions. 
let me explore something a little bit with you because I, I think what was always interesting to me, again, realize I'm, I'm starting my residency in 1985 in, in San Francisco uh, in my first rotations at San Francisco General Hospital. And so I'm getting upfront exposure. And th- these are some of the hardest clinical days of my life because just thinking back on it, you know, got to know many patients really well and, and we could do so little. And, and the, the disease at that point was, it, it was such a burden. I mean, it was, people were dying in, in ways they, were, they couldn't breathe or, or massive infections or they had di- diarrhea that we couldn't stop. And, and uh, you know, we could do very little but comfort. But there was a culture that was emerging within the HIV physician and caregiving uh, side that was very, very interesting and has yet to fully spread, which was... On the, on the professional, on the sort of healthcare professional side, a great sense of teamwork. And what I remember that what I was seeing was not the hierarchy of I'm the doc. There was this sense of respect and, and like you're describing, that, that people wanted to know things. Well, why, why do you think that emerged in HIV? What was your sense of it? I think there are two things. One is I think what you saw when you arrived in 1985 was a process which had developed over the the early years of the epidemic, 81, 82, 83, 84, in which politically active San Franciscans uh, and New Yorkers on my side of the country were already telling Paul and Don Abrams and other researchers and clinicians out in San Francisco that they wanted to be part of the decision-making about their own care and their own futures. Um, The other interesting thing is people like Donald Abrams in San Francisco, Joseph Sonnebend, who was my doctor in New York, were part of the community. They were not um, straight white men. They were gay men. There was a, a culture beginning in the 80s that was uh, both because there was collaboration between doctors uh, and their patients because they were part of the same community, but also people were making political claims on them, uh, particularly in Washington, New York, L.A., San Francisco. And, and the community was facing yeah, common external challenges around even just the recognition of the epidemic or the funding of the research. Yeah, I think the other thing is that there was, there was distrust in the beginning. Um, the government was out to get us. Ronald Reagan didn't say the word HIV until seven years into his uh, term. They laughed about it in the Oval Office. We had a, a big sense that people who were in power didn't really care if we lived or died. Um, and it didn't extend necessarily to our physicians. But in general, we didn't trust the system to to work in our best interest, whether it was hospitals like St. Vincent's or the National Institutes of Health or the Food and Drug Administration. Um, and that distrust um, spawned are willing to sort of investigate and to criticize and to analyze. Um, and I think as we moved on, we realized, you know, maybe this is more complicated than we thought. Um, maybe uh, it's not researchers or clinicians that, that are, are obstacle, that it's uh, – there, there are questions about the nature of the drugs that we have available to us and we have to sort through the science ourselves to make sense of what, what's going on. Um, it wasn't that they were, they were withholding a cure from us. Is that the drugs we had weren't very good and we wanted to understand why that was the case, um, how the clinical trials worked, um, what the research pipeline held in store for us. Um, so we dove into the science of, of both the clinical management of HIV but also the research on HIV and all its opportunistic sequelae. I saw it also on the individual patient level that, that there was this interest in not delegating understanding and, and trying to understand what the options were. What, what what did you perceive as – what were the benefits of it? What did it mean for the pace of research progress? What did it mean for individuals who are facing health challenges being able to act more as 
as partners with their with their doctors in this process? Well, let's fast forward to South Africa, a township outside of Cape Town called Kailicha. Um, you know, while we had access to antiretrovirals starting in 1996, that really, you know, radically shifted the the course of disease. Uh, this wasn't necessarily happening in in South Africa. Um, What's interesting is that the movement that ACT UP spawned of sort of patient education and using treatment literacy, as we call it, to, to, to empower patients um, took root in a very different place than New York City in the 1980s and 1890s. This is a poor township. People ne don't necessarily have more than uh, elementary education. But there's a doctor, of Doctors Without Borders, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Eric Gomar, um, and he told a story once about how a young woman came into his clinic and said, uh, Dr. Eric, you have to take me off of uh, D4T, stavudine. I'm getting all this peripheral neuropathy in my feet. Um, I think you should switch me to tenofovir. Um, I know there are issues around bone density, but I think it's the right thing to do. And Eric tells a story about this young woman who didn't go to high school, didn't go to college, certainly didn't go to medical school, but had been part of community education projects in that township to say, you know what? This is what HIV is. This is what all the drugs are. This is what all the opportunistic infections are. And you can take charge. Uh, when you sit in that, that clinic with dozens of other people with HIV, you can take charge in that moment when you meet the nurse and when you meet the doctor because they see many patients during the day. And yes, you know, you have some of the best doctors in, in that clinic, but you need to take charge of your health as well. Um, and it transformed people's lives. Other people were going into clinics in the Eastern Cape saying, why is there no fluconazole in here? Why, it treats cryptococcal meningitis and other fungal infections. Why is there no Why is there no fluconazole on the shelves in the pharmacy in this clinic in Eastern Cape? So it trans it transformed health systems very far away from the sort of uh, early epicenters of the epidemic. And now I think it's a global phenomenon. Um, it's in India. It's in Latin America. It's in Russia. It's all over the world. Sort of HIV activists have been um, transforming their relationships with healthcare providers in a way. Uh, which has been good for their health uh, and good for the health of their communities. Um, I, I think it's such a great story. It, it also deflects the sometimes comments I hear where people say that, yeah, well, in the United States, you can achieve this, but you know, many many other societies have more traditional ways of thinking about healthcare, and you'll never be able to empower folks that are coming in. That, that that's a great story. There, let me ask you this: uh, one of the issues that you're making me think about is that this has the potential to align the doctors and the patients in ways. So this isn't just patients coming in and screaming at the doctors, why aren't you making this possible? But it, it, uh, the doctors want these medicines available too. And it, it, in the right context, it can align. You know, we're seeing worldwide a situation where doctors and patients are sometimes at odds. There was a recent uh, a national strike in India because of the issue of violence against doctors. And we, we, you know, we're seeing sometimes doctors and patients being at odds, but actually this notion of patients getting more involved can be constructive for that relationship. Have you, you seen that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I talked about the early distrust in the, in the early to mid-80s, um, and what it really shifted to is partnership. There are doctors all over the world who are, are close allies and comrades and colleagues with, with patients and often fighting for the same things, whether it's uh, about stockouts of drugs in, in Malawi or it's access to viral load tests in India. Um, you see doctors, nurses, nurses in particular, hand-in-hand uh, -hand with patients arguing for the same sort of reforms to, to the health systems at, from the clinic level all the way up to national AIDS programs. And so I, I, I think there's actually uh, – 
a movement which has extended out beyond patients to, to sort of doctors who are willing to sort of seed control but also say, you know what, my job doesn't end at the clinic door, um, that m part of m working for my patient's health is working with them on larger issues that are keeping them from, from achieving the, the highest health gains they can in, in any given society. How did this affect uh, research? There was obviously this larger arc where there was this effort to try to garner research funding, but but it would be natural for this community to be suspicious of researchers. Did you see that? Yes. Towards the end of the 80s, activists in, invaded the National Institutes of Health AIDS clinical trials groups. Um, and there is a lot of resistance to begin with. When you um, say invaded, what does that mean? Like pushed open the doors to, to clinical trials meetings and said, we're, we're, we're here and we're not leaving. What happened, there was a lot of resistance. Um, but what I think they realized soon afterward is that we did our homework. Um, and so there were a couple of things I would point out. One is that we could bring people to clinical trials who they didn't necessarily reach out to, women and people of color who are historically underrepresented. We also knew the first people to invite us in were the statisticians. Um, and it, it's, you know, it may seem odd that they were the sort of entry point into research for a lot of us, but they taught us how to think about the science. Um, and um, I'll never forget one AIDS research meeting in Berlin um, where a major AIDS researcher presented a study of combination antiviral therapy before heart in which it was clear she had done a post hoc subgroup analysis and was cherry picking the data. And we were livid. And the only reason we knew to be livid is because statisticians said you don't do that. And we were able to sort of keep an eye on researchers to, to hold their feet to the fire to say, look, we understand you want uh, advances as well as us, but we're, we're a little bit, we're willing to sort of face the hard truths. And so I think we, were, we became watchdogs of the AIDS research enterprise on the clinical side. You know, in 1992 or three, a, a colleague of mine and I read through every grant and app, abstract every grant did an NIH for AIDS research. And you also saw that it, in terms of management, beyond sort of the sort of nitty gritty of any clinical trial or research study, that there was redundancy and gaps uh, and a lack of leadership across the various institutes at NIH. And we, we, we said, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. Um, there needs to be more sort of substantial leadership and coordination. Um, a few months later, a virologist at Harvard and Bernie Fields uh, came out with a similar statement. The NIH commissioned a review several years later, which made the same claims that we did two years earlier. So we, we became weary consumers of clinical information and clinical trial research. We became partners with researchers as they were developing protocols uh, throughout the ACTG and the other sort of clinical trial networks that um, NIH funded. Um, so we became intimately involved in research and are still to this day. And, and does that have effect on speed with which people you know, are enrolling in the trials? I think we were very important in sort of helping the NIH to reach out to communities that otherwise wouldn't be represented in clinical trials. We also pushed for um, reforms that made it easier to access experimental drugs before clinical trials were finished and FDA approval was gained uh, for, for new drugs. There's something called the parallel track where people got access to DDI and D4Ts to early antiretrovirals by the tens of thousands um, while they collected safety data on uh, on the drugs. Um, and these were people who were, couldn't enroll in the clinical trials because of exclusion criteria or too far away from clinical trial sites. So we were trying to sort of pioneer new ways of creating systems that would get access to new drugs but also provide um, safety information and other answers about them as well. I think a lot of people are just, they've been trained to defer, you know, to think like, well, there's so much to know and I couldn't possibly know. And what and some of the stories you're telling, including the one from South Africa, you know, I've seen this time and time again within a lane where there's high stakes for you, 
people are capable of, of remarkable amounts of expertise. And I've seen this in patients I've seen who can come in and if someone has an unusual condition that they've had for a bit and had a chance to learn on it, they can often know in that moment more than the doctor because the doctor may have a more superficial or a more of a understanding of this from a, a distance. They may not have seen it for a long time. And that patient is up to date completely. And and the doctors need not, not feel threatened by that, but rather collaborative. But how did, what what was it for you? Because it, again, in retrospect, it can sound easier that you were able to make this journey. But but I for many people, they would encounter the sense that like, I can't, I, you know, I, I couldn't possibly rather than I must. So one is we didn't do it on our own. We had, you know, first of all, many of us had the privilege of some sort of college education, even if I you know, curtailed mine earlier on. And we studied together. We, you know, many of us had no scientific background, but some did. And we, 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 we studied immunology textbooks, virology textbooks, AIDS medicines textbooks, and, and sort of did it on our own. But, you know, what's remarkable to me is, is not that um, middle-class gay white men in New York City could do this, is the South African story that I told you, in which you don't need actually uh, to have a, uh, a university education or high school education to sort of absorb this material. But what you have to have is resources and people willing to teach you. Um, and I would say there was a golden era of treatment literacy starting in the United States in, with the birth of ACT UP, in which people taught themselves the science of HIV. Um, but also in the 2000s, a, around the world in which this whole model of patient empowerment through treatment literacy took off. But, you know, the resources simply aren't there. After the financial crash, investments in sort of community approaches to AIDS treatment got short drift. I think the same thing happened in the United States. Once we had the drugs out there that were sort of game changers for, for many people, people didn't think it was that important to sort of keep maintaining this sort of active sort of uh, uh, system of patient empowerment and patient uh, education that we once had. It's, but you know, we took control over the the system, and then w once the basic needs were were achieved in 1996, for for many of us, people took their marbles and went home. There was a women's health movement in the 70s, uh, which I would say gave birth to the AIDS movement. Sort of thinking about how we think about science and treatment, um, and then there was the AIDS movement to the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, which sort of gave birth to this sort of um, revolution in HIV care, relationship between doctors and patients, between researchers and subjects. But it all requires resources, incentives to make the system uh, invest in this. It's not just about changing the culture and the relationship. It's changing the structure of medicine, the structure of research, so that it's not thought of as an extra or something that would be nice to do, that there's some sort of built-in mechanism to ensure that this happens over time and that when my generation uh, moves on, that there's a new generation there of activists who will sort of hold physicians' feet to the fire, uh, hold researchers' feet to the fire, build partnerships with researchers and clinicians. Uh, but it's not a given that it'll just happen sort of by uh, goodwill or the uh, passion of a few individuals. There's been a sort of lack of structural investment in patient empowerment uh, and patient education um, that's made what we've done perhaps unsustainable into the future. The other piece of this is that many patient groups now are funded by industry. Um, and so their job is to argue for new drug approvals or, or to create support groups. It's not based on the empowerment model that we had from the 80s. It's based on a, a, a consumer model, uh, which sort of has been become pervasive over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, my, my view of this is that 
our goal needs to be to make this normative. So it's actually not that there needs to be a generation of activists, but that that we've embedded this in, in this is just how the way things are done. And, and one of my hopes about this is it becomes a competitive advantage, that, that as health systems go more at risk, their alternative payment models, they're really needing to think more about population health, that they're recognizing that treating patients as partners and, and trying to develop these kind of collaborative approaches will lead to better, more efficient, more evolved care strategies that, that people are going together and align people in ways that we haven't been able to achieve before. I, I want to ask one other question that sort of came up as you were talking about that South African example. So, so how, how did you do that? I mean, how, how was that achieved? So you have people who have a minimum amount of formal education. They may still be bright, but, you know, in a resource-poor environment. There are two things. One is the same motivation that drove us in the, the late 80s, early 80s was about self-preservation. So self-preservation is a strong motivation to, to learning and to, to, to fighting for your life. That's one piece of it. This is also a generation that overthrew the apartheid state. So they, they, they knew how to organize and organize for change. We went down and did three trainings in Durban, uh, Johannesburg, and Cape Town. Within a year, they'd created a nationwide program for treatment literacy with posters up saying, why is there no cotrimoxazole in your clinic, or no fluconazole in your clinic? Treatment literacy guides in all the native languages of South Africa support groups in which people were being trained about treatment. There was money and there was support to do it. There were these structural investments by donors back at that time. So you know, maybe it was the perfect storm of resources, um, passion, and um, and technical sort of advice from some outsiders at the moment. But, you know, it's the model which is sort of, I've watched it have spread around the world. One thing I want to ask you as we get to the end here is some people may listen to you and say like, well, gee, Greg is amazing, you know, and what you've been able to achieve. But what would you say to people who look at you and say, that's a great story, but I really can't ever envision doing what Greg did. I mean, how did he... He, he's telling me he's reading immunology texts. I can't read that. You're giving this, the, the example in South Africa, but can you just speak to people who might think that way? And the reason I say that is because one of the reasons to have you here is to, to as an example, you know, I think we need to show people archetypes. We need to show people that there are paths to taking a sort of greater role. So I'm not the archetype. My friend Vuiseka Dubula in South Africa is the archetype. My friend Lun Gangte in, in Delhi is the archetype. My friend Gregory Burgers in Moscow is the archetype. These are people who did not have the privileges I had uh, growing up or even today who have been able to sort of learn the science of HIV, of TB, often hepatitis C as well, uh, and make demands on their healthcare providers, their health systems, and their governments in a way that honors the history of ACT UP but is really made it their own. And so it's happening all over the world. Uh, maybe it hasn't come home to the U.S. And taking it to scale is a whole other thing. If you don't have the support to do it, whether it's your comrades like I had in ACT UP or the treatment action campaign that Viseka Dabula was was general secretary of for many years, um, it's hard to do it on your own. So you've got to create a culture and a system that um, builds in this as an integral part of the medical enterprise and the research enterprise, not sort of an add-on or an afterthought. And, and do you think it, it, it will have to be confrontational or are there ways to be collaborative? And again, taking this down to your individual relationships with your healthcare professionals. I mean, to what extent have you found it to be collaborative? I mean, when I hear you talk, I think actually you found people who you believe, who share your beliefs about how medicine ought to be practiced. Well, I, I found it as, co as collaborations. I mean, I, I haven't really fought with healthcare providers. I've actually chosen healthcare providers because I knew they were open to sort of um, what I was thinking and knew that I was trying to learn about my own diagnosis of HIV. 
I think in some cases it is going to have to be a little bit of pushback because as you've described, there's a system in which the patient is down here and the the doctor is up here um, and pushing back and saying, you know what, let's talk a little bit about the chemotherapy you want to give me or the the, the you know, medicine you want to give me for my heart condition. You know, people say, I don't have time. It, you know, we've we got 15 minutes. So I don't, you know, talk to the nurse about it. There's going to have to be some pushback, but patients shouldn't be left on their own devices to do this. This is why I said we need structural reforms and ways in which the system of medical education, medical care provision honors the, the role of the patient as a partner, not as a, as a passive uh, actor in, in the system. And look, hospitals, medical schools uh, aren't necessarily set up to, to do this right now. Um, and there's going to need to be a, a little bit of, uh, of a cultural revolution, as you said, to, to change the, the landscape of care provision in the United States. Are, are you hopeful that the, the ethos that exists within the HIV community might be able to spread throughout medicine? I don't know if it can. You know, it's been interesting to watch in tuberculosis, maternal child health as I've traveled around the world, that doesn't necessarily spread to other areas of clinical care and research. Um, but I also think that's because of the investments in HIV um, and the specific sort of um, history of, of, of the epidemic. I think it's entirely possible, but we need the resources and we need the expertise the, the time and the commitment to do it. But I think it's, it's a model that could spread widely and, as you said, uh, change the face of medicine but also make it better for both physicians, nurses, physicians, assistants, and patients. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. I, I, I want to thank you for, for taking the time and I think everyone listening can, can understand this sort of combination of, you know, you're one of the most not only effective uh, activists, uh, not only someone who's now generating scholarship that can help push forward policies and, and health, but an extraordinarily thoughtful I- individual about about where we're going and, and where we've been. So I, I want to thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to have you as our guest. Thanks, Harlan. Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Cesar Carballo and Daisy Massey, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at at NDU underscore podcast. Or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have new episodes in two weeks.